thank you so much for that kind introduction. Of course, my favorite part of that was hearing Clemson uh, University because we're ranked number two in the country in football. And that's what I really care about today. I just, I just want to let you, let you know that. Uh, welcome. I am so glad and delighted that you all came to hear this lecture uh, this evening. Uh, what I'd like to do is, is propose a narrative about mass incarceration and where we're headed with this. And then I'm happy to engage in some questions and reflections uh, after I have completed this. So thank you so much to everyone in the center for having me. I am delighted uh, to, be, to be here. Uh, with the 2010 publication of the new Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colored Blindness by Ohio State, actually I should say former Ohio State uh, a university law professor, Michelle Alexander, she's actually left law completely and now teaches at a seminary in New York called Union uh, Theological Seminary. The conversation about America's exploding prison population singularly became focused on the intersection of race, poverty, and the war on drugs. According to the narrative, the drug war disproportionately targets African Americans in lower income communities as a means of social control via the criminal justice system. In, in a similar way, uh, Jim Crow controlled uh, blacks in the early 20th century. The one problem with the mass incarceration of Jim Crow thesis is that it does not, fit, it does not fit the empirical data and does not tell enough of the story. <coughs> Excuse me. The drug war is not the reason that, that today we have about 2.3 million people incarcerated in this country, I argue in my book. Uh, in the mid-1970s, the U.S. prison population grew from 300,000 to 1.6 million inmates. The incarceration rate from 100 per 100,000 to 500 per 100,000 largely due to violent crime and property crime and prosecutorial abuse. You see, we have a, a violence problem in this country. Drug policy changes would, therefore, have very little effect on prison population roles. The most significant challenge to the Alexander thesis came from Yale Law School professor James Foreman, Jr. in a 2012 article titled Racial Critiques of Mass Incarceration Beyond the new Jim Crow. Foreman observes that drug of offenders constitute only a quarter of the nation's prisoners, while the violent offenders make up about half. While sympathetic to the ways in which those living in poor black communities are more likely to end up incarcerated than those in middle class black communities, it is simply not true that drug policy targeted at blacks is driving prison numbers. The Jim Crow narrative obscures the fact that prison numbers began to grow after reported street crime quadrupled from 1959 to 1971, and homicide rates doubled between 1963 and 1974 as robbery rates tripled. During this time, many black leaders were asking for more police presence in their own neighborhoods to curb the violence and property crimes. 
Moreover, Foreman explains, if there was some mass race conspiracy to incarcerate blacks via drug or a law enforcement policy, it would be difficult then to explain police activity in cities like Washington, D.C., where a majority black populated and controlled government also incarcerated massive amounts of African-American men. The fact remains that among state prisoners in 2006, which houses nearly 90% of all prisoners, 50% were serving time for violent offenses. 21% for property offenses, 20% for drug offenses, and 8% for public order offenses. Foreman concludes then, even if every single drug offender in America were released tomorrow, the United States would still have the largest prison system. The second major blow to the Alexander thesis came from John Pfaff, professor of law at Fordham Law School, in his 2015 article, War on Drugs and Prison Growth, Limited Importance and Limited Legislative Options. Pfaff highlights that overall, only 17% of all prisoners are serving time for drug offenses, and that drug offenders in prison only explains about 22% of prison growth. In fact, if all black drug offense prisoners were released today, the, the black prison population would only drop by 1.4%. According to Pfaff, it is the conduct of prosecutors that has driven prison growth in recent, in recent decades, not drug policy. Prosecutors are much more aggressive in throwing the book at people. Pfaff and others observe that while the war on drugs may not have grown the prison population, it may have contributed to more collateral social and economic costs, such as reduce, reduce health outcomes for the poor, removing men from the labor market, destabilizing families, destroying social networks, and destroying civic participation, which all open the door for antisocial and criminal behavior. In the end, the war on drugs has undermined civil society and made many low-income communities worse off in the process. In order to find solutions then to, mass, to, the, mass to the mass incarceration crisis, we must get the story straight. If we get the narrative wrong, we'll get the solutions also wrong. We want to keep in mind that the that we, we want to keep in mind the relationship between correlation and causation. And we must resist overly simplistic descriptions of very complex and complicated historical social phenomena. We want to remember that one social cause X does not necessarily lead to any social outcome Y. In other words, causation does not imply or prove correlation. So when I started digging into the data and not just reading a book and watching a, a documentary on Netflix, I discovered that the race-driven narrative actually misses the core historical problem. And given the numbers, the intersection of race and incarceration seemed plausible, but when you dig into the data, you see that the story is actually much, much worse. So here's where we are today. The American criminal justice system holds about 2.3 million people in 
1,719 state prisons, 102 federal prisons, uh, eight, uh, 1,852 juvenile correctional facilities, 3,600, sorry, uh, uh, 3,100 local jails, and 80 Indian country, that is Native American jails, as well as in military prisons, immigration detention facilities, uh, civil commitment centers, and state psychiatric hospitals and prisons in the U.S. inner territories. And there are another 840,000 people on parole and a staggering 3.7 million people on probation. One in three adults has a criminal record. One in three black boys born will be incarcerated. One in 34 Americans are now under correctional control. One in, one in 28 children has an incarcerated parent. You see, breaking the law in this country is actually quite easy. There are over 4,500 offenses that we could be charged with at any time. Did you know, for example, that it's a federal crime to sell onion rings resembling normal onion rings, but made from diced onions without saying so? <laughs> Did you also know that it's a federal crime to skateboard at the National Institutes of Health. It's also a federal crime to sell turkey ham as ham turkey, or with words turkey and ham in different fonts. So the question is, since we're probably all criminals, why is it that some of us end up incarcerated and others of us do not? What I'd like to propose today is that mass incarceration is a story largely about the intersection of class, exacerbated by race in the 20th century and geography and family breakdown and trauma, and sensory neglect, and poverty, and mental health, and so on. All within the confines of an overly punitive criminal justice apparatus toward the poor. Here's a social fact about American history. We resent poor people, regardless of their race. And we've used the criminal justice system historically to remove poor people from civil society. And mass incarceration is largely an anthropological problem targeted toward the poor rather than merely a public policy conundrum that needs to be tweaked. Poor people in this country have always struggled to be assigned the status of fully human by the ruling classes. Mass incarceration tells us everything about the cycles of those to whom elites decide are worthy of being afforded the title fully human and those worthy of receiving human dignity. On April 5th, 1790, the Pennsylvania legislature passed the law that established the legal foundation for America's first true prison system. That's where our mass incarceration story actually began. It's an incarceration story of how we treat poor people in this country. 
And I want to propose that finding solutions to mass incarceration is largely about making sure that our criminal justice system views people who commit crime as fully human and treated as such. The anthropology matters because criminal justice devolved into labeling, to a labeling system that redefined the humanity of people who broke the law. In 1985, when everyone was asleep on this issue, John Irwin wrote a book titled The Jail, subtitled Managing the Underclass in American Society, because it was America that has always been overly punitive toward the underclasses. We use the criminal justice system to control them, and Irwin coined the term rabble to describe the Humanity afforded those of the underclass who are incarcerated. See, once new labels are assigned to criminal deviants, they then become much more complacent about using the law to control criminals, to keep our communities safe. Once offenders lose labels associated with human dignity, social decision makers, lawmakers, and voters at large become increasingly agnostic and disinterested and we saw this following the turbulence of the 1960s regarding the quality of our criminal justice system. The level of contempt and disdain and sometimes disgust that we have for lower class offenders in this country has a very, very long American history. As a society, we have very little patience for deviants and deviant people who make unwise decisions. So if criminals end up in a dysfunctional and oppressive criminal justice system, well, so be it. And criminals are getting what they deserve. Jails and prisons then are places where we lock up the rabble. The rabble are the deviants, the people who, who are detached and held in disrepute. Criminal deviants are detached and and not well integrated into pro-social norms of conventional society. They are disputable because they are evil and disgraceful and inhumane and offensive and dangerous and threatening and untrustworthy, rabble-rousing, unruly, treacherous, and destroyers of the common good and so on. And we must do whatever we can to keep our communities free of the rabble and our children as far away from them as possible. Therefore, we lock up the rabble, as he's always done in this country since the nation's founding and since the nation's establishment of the first prison and penitentiary system by Christians in Pennsylvania. So if you examine the long history of criminal justice, you'll find that the American story is one of labeling people rabble and then using the criminal justice system to remove those people from our communities. In the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, the rabble were lower class black men. But before that time, a different group were the rabble. It seems that the rabble label is being applied even now to a brand new community, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Since the Civil War, the rabble have been primarily lower class whites 
uh, immigrants, uh, refugees, and black Americans. And there's a new rabble group quickly emerging on the horizon, which has skyrocketed some rates that we'll talk about in the state of Virginia. So here are a few places I think we need to start in terms of finding a solution to this mass incarceration conundrum. First, we have to take poverty seriously. The people who enter the criminal justice system are overwhelmingly poor. Two-thirds detained in jails report annual incomes of $20,000 or less prior to arrests. Incarceration contributes to poverty by creating employment barriers, reducing earnings, and decreasing economic security through criminal debt, fines, fees, etc. Not only are they poor, they also tend to be uneducated. 75% of those in state prison and 60% in federal prisons have not completed high school. So they're poor, uneducated, and about 59% in state prisons and 45% in federal prisons have at least one mental health issue. Added to that, they tend to be victims of, drama, of, of, of trauma. Added to that, they tend to have substance abuse issues. More than half of people in state prison meet the criteria for drug abuse, sorry, for, for drug dependence or abuse compared to 5% of the general population. To make matters worse, nearly 32% of people in prison report having hearing, vision, cognitive, or ambulatory disabilities compared to only 11% of the general population. So here's some good news. Uh, since 2007, the arrest rates and incarceration rates for African Americans has, has been in steep decline. We really, be, we really began to see that decline uh, in, in uh, 2009. At the end of 2017, there was an estimated 1% decline in the people uh, of people in state and federal prisons with a 0.7% decline in, 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 uh, with people under state uh, prison jurisdiction and a 3.1% decline of people in federal in the uh, federal prison system. Now, if you think those percentages are low, consider we're talking about uh, 1% and 0.7% and 3.1% of 2.3 million people. So these are thousands and thousands of, of, of reductions that we're seeing. The, to the total prison population dropped below 1.5 million for the first time since 2004. Uh, in neighboring Maryland, uh, for example, Declines have been quite dramatic, 1.2% uh, in 2015 and 3.7% in 2016. In 2017, Maryland reduced their prison population by 9.6%, which was the largest in the country after enacting sentencing reform and getting rid of cash bail. Here's some bad news. And this is where I make the case that there's a new rabble being identified. So while urban and inner city rates are declining, uh, crime rates are down, arrest rates are down, incarceration rates are down, there is one place in America where it's spiking right now. And that's in rural America. Rural facilities are now the fastest growing incarceration spaces in the country. 
because lower class white people are now increasingly becoming the new rabble. Out of 740,000 people in U.S. jails, 20% are in rural areas and 33% are in medium and small metro areas. Large metro areas have 27% of the prison population and suburbs of large metro areas are holding at 20%. Incarceration is increasingly becoming a white lower class issue. Between 1970 and 2013, researchers found pre-trial incarcerations, that is when people are charged with a crime and held in jail, have increased more than 425% in rural counties. By comparison, Vera Institute research has found that since 2000, pre-trial incarcerations in big cities has leveled off. In cities like Atlanta, New York, Chicago, et cetera, the number of people incarcerated has actually declined. So there's now an urban-rural divide with respect to mass incarceration, and the South and West is where we find it most acutely. According to one study, 84% of jails hold people on behalf of other uh, local jails and state uh, uh, facilities. In the 1970s, fewer than half of U.S. counties reported uh, holding someone for another agency. Rural jails have the highest growth in pretrial detention in this country. In fact, some current research by the Vera Institute noted that Stanton City, S-T-A-U-T-O-N, does that say that right? Stanton? Stanton City? Stanton City, Virginia, about an hour and 45 minutes away from here, something like that, is number two in the nation for the highest pretrial incarceration rate at 970 per 100,000. It's not the cities, it's in the counties. So we take poor, uneducated, disabled, mentally health, uh, those who have, have, have uh, mental health struggles, and we use jails and prisons to control them and it's increasingly become the case that we do those, we, we have that control of those who are struggling in rural areas, especially those where the opioid crisis has been uh, uh, particularly deleterious. So poverty is a massive problem and how we label those who are poor is something that we have to wrestle with. Now here are just a few other uh, issues that we need to address in terms of finding a solution. Our prosecutors have too much power. The vast number of felony convictions in this country go right to plea bargains. 94% at the state level and 97% at the, at the uh, federal level, which means that prosecutors have more power than judges. The problem is that prosecutors are accountable to no one and they often stack charges and use those against the poor and coerce them to plead guilty to things that they actually haven't done. If you're poor, it's hard to get a quality defense. One of the reasons that most of us in this room would not go to jail with, by committing one of the 4,500 federal crimes is that we, we could afford an attorney who would get us out. 
But if you're poor, you're at the mercy of the indigent defense system. And finding a quality public defender in most places is nearly impossible, given, for example, the, the caseload that public defenders have. Judges also are restricted in their ability to sentence because of mandatory sentence, uh, excuse me, because of mandatory uh, minimum sentencing laws that state legislatures handcuff judges from adjudicating cases in, in ways that make more sense. There's also the school to prison pipeline problem where zero tolerance policies and putting police officers as the primary disciplinarian in school means that children who are struggling, those who have disciplinary problems, aren't just sent home, they're sent to jail. So we can't just ignore the public schools because our own kids may not be in them. So I believe that this is an anthropological problem as we look at these issues because we label people rabble. And then we assign them and allow them to be taken advantage of by a system that treats them in a very inhumane way. So one of the things that I want to, to invite people to do is to think about criminal justice reform not from policies down, like tweaking drug laws, which is fine, but what if we did it from the person up? Thinking about the human person and all of the, all of the needs and, and attributes of what it means to be human and craft policies based on what people actually need socially and emotionally and psychologically and morally. That when, we, that when we begin to think from the person up, not the policy down, and when we actually infuse humanity into people who break the social contract, we'll have a criminal justice system that actually changes the way it treats those in the system because the goal is to restore people back to being human and restoring them to community. There was some recent research done, and they took some teens who were in juvenile uh, 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 detention centers. And these teens had conduct disorders. They were highly aggressive, uh, violent teens. And the researchers created um, an experiment where they had some teens watch relaxation videos 30 minutes a day for a couple weeks, and they gave another set of teens massage therapy. And you know how great that feels. And after two weeks of 30 minutes of massage therapy, guess what happened to, the, to, the, to these teens that had, they were aggressive and had conduct disorder? Guess what happened? Their depression dissipated. Their anxiety dissipated. They became more cooperative. They became more empathetic. And so the research began to show this. 
that when you see an incarcerated teen, what you're probably seeing is a teen who was a victim of sensory neglect, either physical abuse or not being touched. And so they noticed that if we just touched them and hugged them and embraced them and listened to them and humanized them, their anxiety, their depression, their aggressiveness plummeted. Now, I'm not saying that we need to have hugging centers around the country, although I would be happy to, to go to one every now and because I, I need hugs. But I think it really speaks to the fact that, that, that this is not just about policy, that this really is about people. And so if it really is about people, we need to think about what are the best institutions in society that can make contributions to all of the things that constitute and ennoble what it means to be truly human. So if people need affection, who's best at that? If people need education, who's best at that? If people need jobs, who's best at that? And, and the, the point I make in the book is that we need to have more institutions from civil society make a contribution to solving this issue. Cops aren't great at giving hugs to kids, but grandparents and, and maybe coaches might be, and maybe pastors and, and, and other music teachers and things like that. Maybe we need to have a better sense of community and consider people truly human, that we can radically change this mass incarceration problem by removing the label of rabble and stop denying people their very basic humanity. So I end the book by making a ridiculously radical proposal that maybe, just maybe, the most, the most radically uh, powerful, uh, cosmic way that we can address this issue it's just by old-fashioned loving our neighbor. Just loving people that we think don't deserve love. Loving people that, that the country's thrown out. Loving the ones on the margins and loving them back into community, back into stability and health and wholeness by making our own sacrifices to see that they flourish because when they flourish, we all do. You will not find in any juvenile detention center or prison in this country a man or a woman who experienced a life of love and affection and attention and care and education and employment and opportunity committing acts of violence and property crime. It's just that Simple, but it's also incredibly, incredibly difficult and challenging and self-sacrificial. Thank you very much. I'll take any questions, comments, rejections. Yes, sir, in the back. You just talked about the study that Yes. What was that study called? Um, 
It was by uh, uh, Tiffany Field. There is a... Um, uh, uh, at the University of Miami, there is a touch... A, a touch therapy institute, and Tiffany Field and Diego, uh, last name Diego, uh, they have a, a battery of, of experiments that they've done and studies that, that, that they've done on that. Uh, that particular article was, was titled Aggressive Adolescents Benefit from Massage Therapy. There's also an, another article by Tiffany Field titled Violence and Touch Deprivation in Adolescents is another uh, article that you can you can uh, read up on that. I was actually blown away by this, but it began to make more sense to me, actually. Because it, it's, it's known that there is a very strong correlation between uh, sensory neglect and boys acting out violently, right? Either being abused or, not, or, or neglected in terms of not having enough affection and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and uh, uh, love and care. When, when boys are neglected, they tend, to, they tend to hurt other people. When girls are neglected, they tend to hurt themselves. So that's what we see in the data. Yes, sir? If the, if the, if the problem is so big, yep. the solution is so simple, yes. why don't we hear the solutions often that's a great question. So he asks, why don't we hear about these solutions more often? I think um, and, and I think in part because we don't have enough people across the various spaces working on this issue talking to each other enough. So I've been very, very concerned that practitioners are over here and, and scholars are over there and they're not in the same room together. And that when we think about interventions, I think part of the problem is that we, we believe that the, the narrative of the story has everything to do with how we've structured the policy. And we haven't really thought about the other variables that might complicate the narrative. So when you look at the other narratives, I think it, it expands the range of what we might consider a matrix of solutions, and I think it, it, it actually can simplify them and, and make them more local. I think that, the, that it's also the case that people assume this is, a, is, this is a, a national problem instead of a local one. Remember, about 90% of all prisoners are in state prisons, not federal prisons. And so the narrative that you often hear is about the federal system but the, the reality is that, that this is about your county and your state. And I think because we're, we don't really care that much about our local and county and state issues, that this issue has sort of gotten off the radar. Most people didn't vote last, you know, this week, right? And that's because we, we tend to uh, think of ourselves outside of our local community, I think, I think way too much. So I think if we begin to, to treat this as a more local issue as opposed to a national one, I think some of those more easily attainable solutions would begin to be things that people would be interested in and can see that you can make a real difference in this issue by being a football coach. 
Or you can make a real difference in this issue by being, and this is something that at middle class people would never do, like encourage your children to be police officers. Right? Or encourage your children to, to um, uh, be public defenders, not hedge fund lawyers. Right? That, that, that people that have some of the greatest capital and greatest virtue in this country live such, I'd say, narcissistic, Snapchat, Instagram-worthy lives that they, they miss opportunities to invest in some of these more local issues. So people don't want to live in the communities where these issues, I think, are right in front of their faces. These are issues that are mostly seen out in the counties, and so we don't see them as much. Uh, anymore either. Turn back. Yes, sir. Are religiously based institutions and organizations more successful at helping people in prison than traditional other sorts of organizations that work with prisoners? That's a great question. So your intuitions, if, you're, if your intuitions are that they tend to be more effective in the long term, that's actually true. So. Uh, uh, Religious, uh, the, the data will show that religious institutions tend to have greater longitudinal outcomes because religious institutions tend to deal with the whole person and it's much more relational as opposed to programmatic and institutional and detached. So insofar as any program is highly relational, it's going to have a, a greater uh, 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 longitudinal uh, effectiveness in, in, in terms of in terms of outcome. So, could a non-religious program be equally effective? Absolutely, if that program has a high level of person-to-person -person, uh, uh, engagement. One of the things I have in the book is a, in the back. I have a list of those sorts of programs, uh, religious and non-religious, that have been proven to be effective and keeping people out of prison, helping them regain their humanity in prison, and then when they get out, helping them sort of reconnect uh, and, and, re and plug back into, into society. Great, great, great question. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, I think I'm convinced with evidence that we build social capital is effective. Uh, I guess there's a study of gang violence in Boston responding well to more compassionate, compassionate community-based policing efforts and other things. On the other hand, how much of that is sort of Sisyphean task? And that uh, my understanding of the literature is that instead of poverty, it's so predictable crime to the violent crime, crime, crime uh, inequality. So poverty concentrated next to abundant wealth. Sure. Um, so, uh, and so dealing with this is going to require dealing with these larger structural forces that no matter how much you try to build your social capital locally with you know, pronounced inequality. Right. I would, I, would, I would sort of expand that and say that, that, that that inequality disparity is one variable, but there are also others. For example, what you do find are people who are nurtured in places where you have that disparity still make it through. How does that happen? What do you find? You find that, that those who, who 
who are raised in, this, in those same communities who actually don't end up that way but end up in the opposite way tend to have these sorts of things. A very stable family structure, two parents, mom, dad, right? extended network of people who love and care for them. They tend to be involved in uh, religious communities uh, that reinforces uh, pro-social norms. Right? They also often tend to be involved in uh, non-educational form, uh, formative activities that give them a vision of the future and, and how they can uh, uh, become different kinds of people. Right? So the, the, the inequality disparity is by, by itself isn't enough. If you look at the history of African Americans in this country prior to 1965, that was our story. But that wasn't enough to determine people's long-term destinies. People were able to overcome and push through even that during Jim Crow because of all these other institutions that, that allowed pathways for success. So how do, we, how do we, as we work on some of these structural issues, how do we also then put people in positions on pathways to, to success by having them be engaged in other civil society institutions in those very same communities? Because you have to have those when you have those sorts of disparities. So what I've seen in the work uh, is that when, especially when juveniles are, are, in, are participating in, in, in multiple uh, sort of nonprofit type tutoring, uh, mentoring, boys, girls clubs, those sorts of institutions in communities just like that, they have, they have it's a greater predictor of, of success even in communities like that, as we sort of work on some of those structural things. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Okay, I want to be sensitive to your uh, admonition about correlation and thinking about that as cause and effect. Sure. Um, but uh, I, I'm curious about this and, and your opinion on it. Um, the prison population, as you indicated, from the 70s until present has, has ballooned and also has, has the number of Mm -hmm. um, and also, as I recall the statistics, something like 70% of, uh, of those in prison uh, came from broken homes. And yep. when there is an adult male in the home, yep. often that's an abusive male. Um, and, and then some of the things that you just spoke of about community and the kind of community that family supports. So yes. I guess, I guess my theory is, and I'm interested in your insight, yeah. is that the degradation of family is a huge contributor sure. to all this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the many variables, right? So uh, we, have to, we have to, you know, take a, a, a multivariate analysis uh, of, of this issue. And most certainly we see that uh, a breakdowns in those systems is, is one of those variables but it's not necessarily a predictor, right? So let's think about it this way. What, how, how is it that you have girls who are raised in those same homes that don't end up committing property crime and violent crime as much? How is it that you have other males who grew up in those same situations who end up going to college or getting a job or joining the military? How, how, how does that happen? 
right? And, and what you find is there, there is, there tends to be some other type of intervention that even in the context of, of family breakdown or brokenness that, that affords an opportunity toward a pathway to success. So in some of the work that I've seen, um, something as simple as a, as a mentor, a friend, uncle, cousin, something like that, uh, has a massive effect on redirecting uh, a child's life, even, even if the child grows up in a home like that. So we also want to, keep, want to keep this distinction in mind that there's a difference between a, a fatherless home and an unfathered child. Does that make, that make sense? So there are lots of homes where the dad's not in the house, but is still fathering the child. He just doesn't live in the house. In the suburbs, we just call that, you know, custody, <laughs> divorce, <laughs> right? Uh, in, in trailer park communities uh, and in inner cities, we talk about all this sort of breakdown uh, 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 that way. So just sort of anecdotally, I, I had, one of the greatest privileges of my life is being able to be a mentor to a young man whose dad was incarcerated and he was headed that direction himself. And it was actually through our relationship and I wasn't doing much. We were just going to Denny's and eating and hanging out that he redirected his, his life. He just needed somebody to care about him, right? And so even, even if families are this way, they, people still need people to care about them, uh, no matter what. And so historically, if other institutions can serve as surrogate communities of affection, love, and care, those can often facilitate pro-social norms and success. So they may have a family that's not intact, but they may be involved in a great church or something, something like that. Yeah, great, great question. In the back, ma'am, yes. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic question. The the Vera Institute just released a uh, 136 page uh, report and study on what it means to keep to have human dignity be at the center of of prison reform. So, for example, if if we think about if we think about uh, building reform from the person up, right? So when you enter into a jail, instead of being called an inmate, you get called by your name, right? Uh, and instead of being given an orange jumpsuit, you're given regular clothing. What if we, what if we thought about the ways in which we design the architecture of jails and prisons in ways that brought in natural light and humanized people? What if we fed them nutritiously? <laughs> right? I mean, what, what if, what if, what if we, we actually gave them great, you know, better, better mental health resources? Right? What, if, what if we actually uh, uh, wanted, wanted to, to uh, 
as a, as a practice, especially in the, in the juvenile space, divert kids to a diversion program rather than simply locking them up because they were truant from high school, right? And that, so, so I mean, so this is what happens often to adolescents. Uh, you have, a, you have a, 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 um, a student who may be skipping school, may have been acting out in school, and the school resource, the, the school resource officer will, will facilitate that child being put in, in the juvenile system, and then that, then that child is basically internally viewed as a criminal, and then when, when the child returns to school, the principal treats him like that, and all the teachers treat him like that, and all the, his, his classmates refer to him like he's a criminal, and then he sort of embraces that identity as a criminal. So when he turns 18, 19, guess what he does? Criminal things. And that had a lot to do with the labeling that he experienced at 12, 13, 14 in middle school, where he was sent to juvenile detention for stealing milk. I mean, there's a case in Baltimore where this kid was arrested at his middle school, 14-year-old kid was arrested in middle school uh, for stealing uh, milk. Right? That has a ma that, that first contact with the criminal justice system has a massive effect on, on a child's sense of identity. Right? So humanizing the process has a massive effect in thinking about those sorts of outcomes and how people either see themselves as, as able to return to community. About 95% of inmates get released. So we need to think about what we do in the process so that when they return to community, they can return as, as, as men and women who want to make contributions to the, to the common good because they see themselves as one of us. We, we bring them back in rather than simply keeping them out on the margin. So, it's small little things like that along the whole system of our criminal justice apparatus where we, we introduce, recapture these, the very humanizing things that remind people that they're first and foremost human beings. They're not simply deviants. And because they're human beings, we're going to, we're going to call them back to virtue. We're going to call them back to being a contributor rather than a taker. And we, we want to infuse in them hope and care and, and love and connection so they see themselves as different people uh, for, for the future. I highly recommend you read that, that VIR report because uh, it really, it just, it just came out the last couple of weeks. The VIR Institute, and I can't remember the title of the report, but if you Google VIRA and human dignity and prison reform, I think they've got some great recommendations on, on exactly how to do that. Yes, sir. In the sweater right here. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, just to kind of touch on the question of the policy concerns, um, you know, there is something that's really uh, important and critical, and I'd probably like to see your, your views on that, and that's restorative justice. Yes. When we talk about humanizing people and what's the relationship of yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A very 
Absolutely. So those uh, restorative justice measures tends to have uh, the 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 data is. I mean, there's 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 debates on the effectiveness of it. It has a lot to do with the person, but it has shown to be effective in reducing recidivism rates and things like that. Right. Now, interestingly enough, if 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 you ask victims what they want in terms of justice. Victims are far less punitive than voters are. And victims actually want an apology. They want small restitution where it's necessary, but, but they actually want the person restored more than anything else. It's voters who don't live in the communities where they're, where they're making decisions about who are far more punitive than the, than the victims of those, uh, than the victims who've received uh, the transgression. So that's actually part of, that's actually I think the big problem is that the people who are making the decisions about the punishment and the sentencing aren't from the community where the crime occurred. When people in the community are given control over the decisions about what happens to people in their communities, they incarcerate much, much less. And they're much more willing to work with people to, re to reconcile, right? And they're much more willing to do the hard work to build the person back so that he, and sh so that he or she can see themselves as a contributor to that community because they know him or they actually know her. So we have to bring the decision making back as locally as possible. When you have DAs and judges and you know, prosecutors and you have uh, state legislators who, don't eat, who are making these decisions about communities they don't live in, they're gonna be far more punitive than, than, than that. Right? So that, I think that's a major, major way of of restoring and reconciling and reducing some of those recidivism rates when people break the uh, social contract. Okay, one more question. Yes, Professor. So where do they meet, right? Where does the kind of uh, rearranging of the collective psychology for the bottom up? Yep. Because we all know um, no one's going to get reelected in the United States of America in this day and age um, um, without talking about their time. It's part parcel with the political process, the way people campaign in this day and age. How, where is that middle ground, I guess, is what I'm asking. Where, every, with everything you just alluded, with this kind of political culture that reflects um, the voters that you just described. Where, how do we change the political system in a manner that accommodates this kind of ground up approach that you just outlined? Yeah, great. It has, it has a lot to do with what I just said. So um, that, that middle ground, <clears throat> Has, has, seen, has proven to be most effective when it's, when it's localized as much as possible. So we need, to, we need to not think about this as a national issue. This is a, this is a what county is this? Which, which county is this? Yeah. Okay, whatever county this is, okay, okay. 
This is a, this is a, whatever this county is. Yeah. Okay. This is, this is a Virginia, whatever county this is, Richmond City issue. Right? And so when it's, when it's localized and, and, and people like you sitting in here realize that you are the primary driver of change because you decide who the DA is and some of the judges are. And, and you have direct access to people within a 10 mile radius who not only make decisions about these things, but also often in them, find themselves in trouble. So, so part of that, I think, I think part of that, that, that middle ground in terms of rearranging those incentives that keep people more concerned about staying elected than actually doing something tends to, be, tends to uh, uh, dissolve when local people take this up as their issue. When, when regular people see that I have, a, I have a role to play and I can actually make a difference in the, you can go to City Hall this year and contribute at city council meetings to making a difference on this issue in Richmond. You can do it at the state, you can do it. You actually can participate right here, locally. And, and so what we have in this country because of the, the way our, our country's set up, we don't have a criminal justice system. We have criminal justice systems that are completely convoluted and don't connect to one another. So there, there's laws that are in Virginia that aren't in, in the Carolinas, uh, uh, Carolinas and, and things like that. So, so part of, that, part of that, 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 that middle ground, I think, is empowering the rest of us to not outsource the decisions about this to the professionals and to, and to, and to, and to involve ourselves in the decision making and disperse the impact of real change from us. That's what we haven't done in the 70s. What, what happened in, in the 80s and 90s? We increasingly outsource this to those people in D.C. and the State House. And we just went and played golf. And, and went on vacation and raised our kids and, and out of sight, out of mind. And we, we will not have effective change on this issue until we personally get involved. And I, I just want to encourage you if, you, if you know someone who's struggling in the system, and I know all of you have at least one cousin, <laughs> If you know someone who's struggling, get involved in their, in their struggle. Get, get involved in that. We need more direct personal interaction. If we have lots of people loving and caring for one person, I think the aggregate of that has a massive, massive effect. Massive, massive, massive effect. I encourage my students, you know, think locally, act locally, you know, no, think Act locally, think locally. Right? Massive effect in, in terms of, of making real progress there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.